Amen. Amen. What a hymn. What a great hymn. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Nathan has so graciously gotten us a little head start on the text. So we're going to be looking um, here in just a moment, a little later in this passage. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 30. Though we'll be looking at the whole passage during the sermon, I'm going to read to you verses 24 through 30 here in just a moment. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me uh, there to that passage. And let me just say what a joy it's been to gather with you in worship this morning. And I look forward to worshiping with you again on the next Lord's Day and then having a wonderful fellowship together uh, as well out at the farm next Sunday afternoon. I hope you're making plans to attend. If you have your Bibles open there to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 30, do me a favor. Let's all stand together out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Let's pray. Oh God, would you please open our hearts and minds to receive your word. And God, I pray we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our culture, I don't think we perceive any tragedy quite as badly as we perceive the tragedy of wasted potential. Any normal tragedy is almost always compounded in our minds and in the way we tell the stories of tragedy when there is potential that's been wasted. In particular, we hate to see someone who is smart, capable, strong, promising. We hate to see them throw their life away. We see the tragedy even more clearly when a life of seemingly great potential is cut short. When we think about over the years the toll of war and all those things, often the way we talk about that is what accomplishments might have happened, what achievements might there have been, what more might they have accomplished, we ask, when someone of seeming great potentials life is cut short or destroyed in some other way. Some of you in the room, even now, you may find yourselves right now with someone in your mind, 
a friend or a relative or even a child. There, there may be some of you in the room thinking about yourself. Have I thrown my potential away? Am I really doing something worthy of what God made me to do? But I want you to know something. While it is important for us to recognize that we must be good stewards of all the gifts that God's given us and all the potential that God's given us, nonetheless, the eyes of faith oftentimes see these circumstances differently. This morning, we turn our attention to the untragic tragedy of the Bible. Perhaps the greatest untragic tragedy of the Bible, the life of Prince Jonathan. One of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, one of the most fascinating stories in all of the Bible, and one of those stories and one of those arcs and one of those characters that most exposes and most clearly exposes our inability often to see difficult circumstances and even to see the snuffing out of great potential with the life of faith. Chapter 14 of 1 Samuel is situated between the double condemnation of Saul. We've just seen one condemnation of Saul and the Lord telling him the kingdom is going to be taken from him. And in the next chapter, we'll see another condemnation of Saul. But here in the middle, we see a picture of life in the reign of Saul and an introduction to the potential of a Sauline dynasty, a, a, a dynasty rooted in Saul. Understandably, because this is sort of what Saul's life was like, there are high highs and low lows in this chapter. Here in this chapter, though, the reason I think the, the author is helping to highlight this this way and positioning this in this way and highlighting the story between these twin condemnations is that he was helping to highlight precisely why Saul was being rejected. Certainly there's a contrast between Saul and Jonathan there, a, a, a glaring contrast that we're meant to see. In fact, if I were to to, to help you see what contrast I think the author wants us to see this morning, it would be as simple as this. The author wants us to see that Jonathan is a man of faith and that Saul is a man of man-centered works. I think the biggest contrast we're meant to see here between Jonathan and Saul is that Jonathan is a man of faith, whereas Saul is a man of man-centered works. And as we learn more about Jonathan, I think what we're going to be tempted to say is what a tragedy. What a waste. What thrown away potential. But I want you to know something this morning. No life of faith is ever wasted. No life of faith is ever wasted. And while the kingdoms of this world fade, Jonathan served a kingdom that cannot be shaken to the day of his death. And certainly will serve that same kingdom in a world without end. This morning, I want to show you three truths that will frame and shape your life of faith. Three truths I think the author is helping us to see here in this text of Scripture. They're going to help you see what a, a life lived in faith looks like. What does a lived out faith look like? Not a faith that sits back, not a faith that cowers in fear, not a faith that finds a cave to hide in, but a, a faith that's lived out no matter the consequences. That's that's what I hope we'll see this morning. Three truths from the text that help support what it means to live a life 
of faith. Here's the first. Faith takes God-centered action. Now, faith takes God-centered action. Something amazing happens in the first half of this chapter, verses 1 through 23. But before we start to really get into the narrative, I want you to remember what was going on at the close of chapter 13. So you may have missed this, so let me just tell you. Uh, Jonathan had gone out into Philistine territory and had an attack and it made them mad. Okay? And, and everybody's getting nervous and worried. And so Saul had made an improper sacrifice against the word of the Lord, against God's clear revelation through Samuel. And so then we are left at the end of the chapter of chapter 13 hearing and knowing that the kingdom had been ripped from Saul that his dynasty would end that God was not going to establish his kingdom but the circumstances that Israel found itself in were greatly dire not only did they have a lame duck king it seemed but on top of that a great army of Philistines had amassed at their border And on top of that, they were sending out raiding parties, chapter 13 tells us, sort of terrorizing the people of Israel, reminding them that they're there, taking losses along the way. And then on top of that, we learn not only are they outmanned, not only are they at a psychological disadvantage because of these raiding parties, but they're also vastly outarmed. There's not even a a blacksmith in Israel who can who can make farm implements, much less weapons, for the army. And so in all of the armies of Israel... Oh, by the way, guess where the, the blacksmith is? In Philistine. And so even to have food, you have to go trade with your enemy, much less to have weapons, which of course they won't sell you. There are only two spears, only two metal spears in all of Israel. One belongs to Saul, and one belongs to Jonathan. So here they are. A lame duck king, a great army, a band of raiders, no weapons, our pets' heads are falling off. We're in dire straits. It's a difficult, dire situation. And so, of course, we know what Saul's doing, right? He's grinding the gears of war, right? Saul's preparing for action, right? Doesn't seem to be what the author wants us to know about Saul. In, In fact, I want you to see that he's here under... The pomegranate tree. This won't be the first, the last time that Saul's sort of leaned up under a tree instead of taking action on behalf of the Lord. Here we see he's under the pomegranate tree. Perhaps it's a place of court, but either way, he's inactive. Your translation may say he's in a a cave, but there's two ways to look at it, and it seems likely to me that it's the tree. But notice also the company that he's keeping in chapter 14, verse 3. There were with him about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahatub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, and he was wearing an ephod. This means of divination, this way to speak to the Lord, this signal of what it means to be God's priest. Now, do you notice what we have here? We have a rejected king with a rejected priest sitting under the pomegranate tree, Doing nothing. But then we see Jonathan. The chapter opens telling us about him. One day, Jonathan, chapter 1, chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not, this is important to know, he did not tell 
his father. Why did he keep the secret from his father? Was Saul at this point trying so so desperately to hang on to the kingdom that he couldn't think, bear the thought of sacrificing his heir? Was it that, that Saul said, we don't need to attack them anymore so the situation doesn't get worse? We just need to ride this out? We don't know why, but Jonathan felt the need to keep the secret from his father. And so with only his armor bearer, he hatches a plan to make a raid himself against the Philistines. This is not easy, as you already know. The whole army's outmatched and underarmed. But there's even a greater challenge for two men to go attack a, Phil- a Philistine garrison. It required navigating a treacherous landscape. You must traverse one crag called Bozes and then risk exposure in the pass where the garrison could see you. And then at some point or another, you have to traverse another crag called Sina, which means the thorny one, which means this is a very thorny and very treacherous landscape to traverse. But I want you to notice what Jonathan says in light of all of these circumstances. Do you hear what he says? Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, a reminder of their status before the Lord. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, I think one aspect here that might trouble some of us modern Christians is the fact that Jonathan says, maybe God will act for us. Maybe God will act for us. I think we've heard enough in our lifetimes that faith has no doubt that we've come to believe it. By the way, be careful what you listen to. You hear things enough, eventually you believe them. But the idea that faith always means you're 100% sure really negates the act of faith in the first place, right? Because you're 100% sure, it doesn't really require faith. But what is Jonathan saying? The odds are stacked against us. It's a difficult situation. But if God wants to act, God will act. He may not. It's not guaranteed that everything Jonathan does, God wants to do. That's a good reminder for all of us. Just because you want to do it doesn't mean God wants to do it. But he might want to. And Jonathan says the point is not whether we're armed enough or bold enough or good enough. The point is if God wants to save by two or if God wants to save by thousands, God can do it. It doesn't matter. It's up to the Lord. And so they conjure up a test to see if the Lord is in the mission and it passes. And it allows them the opportunity. I think these Philistines in the garrison, when they present themselves to them, allow themselves to be seen. They think the last thing these two guys are going to do is come fight us. So they just simply taunt them. Oh, look, the rats are coming out of their holes. There's a disdain in their voice. They're taunting them in verses 11 and 12. But after the test passes, rather than them chasing after, the Philistines didn't chase after Jonathan and his armor bearer. Instead, they taunted them. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer take a difficult route on their hands and feet, the Bible says, presumably through Sina. They go there and they make it to the garrison. And by now, I'm sure you know what happens. Jonathan and his armor bearer ambush the taunting Philistines. And in this ambush, they take down about 20 Philistines. And so these two Israelites came out of their holes, so to speak, And won a great victory. And if they had just killed 20 Philistines, that's enough, right? That's a pretty good day. But God chose to act. A a panic 
took hold in the camp and God acted as well. The earth quaked. In fact, the way a great panic is said in Hebrew is a, a panic of God. And so it's really clear here in this text that God is at work alongside Jonathan and his armor bearer. And in addition to the 20 that fell, a great calamity comes on the Philistine people and many, many more are lost in the battle. And then Saul and the rest of the soldiers realize what is happening and rush to join in the fighting. Now, for a moment, Saul tried to hesitate again and say, let's bring the ark over here and try to do this and do that when it should just be clear. Now's the time to act by faith. Even those that had gone into the hi- into hiding. It's funny, the Philistines taunt comes true. Some of the folks who had gone and hidden in holes in the ground came out and began to fight as well. By the end of the tumult, things had gotten so crazy that the Philistines were fighting themselves. That's how much and how powerfully God acted. And so God granted Israel an amazing victory in impossible circumstances. What I hope you recognize and see in this is that faith-fueled action is essential. Faith-fueled action is essential. So often we think that what faith does is sits back. That faith goes and finds a pomegranate tree to sit under and wait until uh, the ephod and the umim and the thumim and we wait and we see if the uh, uh, the ark, we, we try all kinds of different means to figure out what does God really want me to do. Whereas what faith does is it sees what God has to say and it goes and acts accordingly. Rather than sitting and wondering and worrying and trying to do consultations like Saul did, sometimes it's simply time to take the imagination of faith, imagine what God might do if God wants to act, be wise in the process, but just absolutely get after it. Faith takes God-centered action. Sometimes we treat faith like its purpose is to make us sit still. We can over-spiritualize inaction. But maybe today God is calling you to do something. And my friends, I'm not encouraging you to be foolhardy. I'm certainly not encouraging you uh, to disregard the Holy Spirit. Oh, I would never encourage you to ignore God's Word. But my friends, if you feel led by the Spirit, if you see it clearly in God's Word, if you believe God's called you to do it, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? We ought to see what God has said to do, trust Him and get to work. God can save by many or by a few. Second of all, not only does faith result in God-centered action, but second of all, faith rejects man-centered religion. That's our second point this morning. Faith rejects man-centered religion. I love verse 23. I bet you're going to like it too. Listen to what verse 23 says. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Isn't that a beautiful verse? But let's not quit reading. Notice what verse 24 said, says. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people. Isn't this strange? That God gave a great victory that day, and yet the people were hard-pressed? Well, they weren't hard-pressed by the Lord. They were hard-pressed by their king because of the vow that we, he had taken. He had made a rash vow to try to get the people to fight hard 
for him. Whereas Jonathan had taken faith-filled action, trusting the Lord to fight for the people, for the Lord's glory, because the God can save, God can save by many or few. What does Saul say? Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now listen, some of y'all are going to get snippy with your family on the way to lunch today because you've not had food. And the only battle you've been fighting is a spiritual battle today. Can you imagine fighting both a spiritual battle and a physical battle all day, trying to rout the enemy? Not so, you're not you when you're hangry. You've not even had so much as a Snickers bar. On top of that, you enter into a forest, and apparently the hive of bees there had become so large in the trees that honey is dropping down onto the ground. It's food falling all around you. It seems like the text insinuates that the honey was maybe even hitting them on their hands and on their cloaks. And those people, because they had been sworn foolishly by their king not to eat, couldn't even lick the honey off their hands as it dropped onto it. Imagine being so hungry, so tired, so exhausted, and then not being able to eat. But Jonathan, Jonathan took his staff and had some honey. He was ignorant of Saul's vow and he revived himself with some of the food. Here we see the foolishness of Saul's man-made, man-centered religion. This is not the first time or the last time that Saul's going to pull a stunt like this. The people were hard-pressed to to such a degree that once the vow was lifted, they were so hungry that they took the spoils and began to eat the, the, the spoils from the Philistines and they ate meat with the blood in it because they were so hungry. That is, they were so busy following man's rules that they, in the end, forgot to follow God's rules. And Saul set the whole situation up. And then, of course, in, in, in terms of this as well, you see that Saul had also inadvertently condemned his own son. Ignorant of Saul's vow, he had eaten some of the honey and then condemned his own father for his rash vow when he learned about it. Finally, Saul divines again back to the Umim and the Thumim and he divines who is guilty and realizes it's his own son. And thankfully the people had seen what happened that day and refused to allow Jonathan to be executed despite the fact Saul had made the vow. Folks, I, I want us to see not only here but throughout the all of Saul's narrative, but particularly here, do you see the way that Saul tries every which way to please God except for God's way? Saul tries every which way to please God except for God's way. And many of us are always pulling a Saul, looking for unique or novel ways to get to God. Folks are looking for Bible codes or asceticism, special preachers, new churches, this book, that teacher. But my friends, Christianity is simple, and God has given us simple, ordinary means to know Him and serve Him. Why would we try our own way when God's way is best? Do you see what Saul's always trying to do? He's always trying to find a way to get people to make God act on his behalf. Whereas faith looks differently. Faith trusts that the Lord will act on the behalf of the people as he sees fit, and we trust that he'll do so and he perhaps will involve us in the process. Why would we try our own way when God's way is best? 
And as Christians, shouldn't we recognize not only is God's way best, not only does perhaps God's way seem harder on the front end, but we know that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Why would we trust in anything but the gospel to get us to God? God's way is gracious. You see, faith takes God-centered action. Faith rejects man-centered religion. And finally, faith values the word over winning. Faith values the word, the word of God over winning. I want you to notice something about the last several verses here. In, protect, in, in particular, I want you to hear verses 47 and 48. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Then verse 52, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Now, do you notice this is sort of the, the last word? The, this is, uh, this is the, the word of history about Saul's kingship. And we get something we're not quite expecting. A pretty glowing review of the kingship of Saul. You know, if this were Yelp, we would be shocked at what a good review Saul's kingship got. In a sense, Saul's kingship, though, was precisely what the people wanted. They wanted someone to fight their battles, and they did. In fact, as kings go, and as a worldly king might be, Saul was not as bad of a king as it might seem. But he was a poor follower of God. He wasn't so, so bad of a military leader. But his integrity was lacking. God's people, you see, had lost sight of who they were and why they were there. They'd lost sight of why God wanted them to be there, why God loved them, why God treasured them, why God wanted them to succeed. You see, they had not been put there for safety or for security or for winning, but to be a peculiar people for God's own glory through whom God would bring a Messiah to save the world. But instead, they got caught up in just being a nation like any other. But my friends, faith values the Word of God over winning you see, Saul was ultimately rejected, not because he wasn't a good warrior, not because he wasn't a good leader, not because he wasn't even a decent king. Saul was rejected. If, 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 if Saul had been leading an SEC program, he would not be fired at the end of the season. But Saul disobeyed the Lord's word. And that is what ultimately led to his rejection. Because though the people, presumably, would have kept Saul, they would have kept the winner... They would have kept the one to fight the battles for them. He disobeyed the Lord's word, and that's what ultimately led to his rejection. Don't you see how strange God's economy is? Don't you see why it takes eyes of faith to see the way the Lord really works? The warrior who would be king. The best character in the Bible, in the, in the book so far is Jonathan. This man of action, this pure royal material. He was rejected because his father is rejected. What a waste, we say. Uh, what, a, what a tragedy. But what's so strange is as we see Jonathan like that, Jonathan doesn't see Jonathan 
like that. As the story unfolds, we see that Jonathan is willing to sacrifice himself in order that God's purpose through David might stand. He recognizes that he is serving the kingdom of God, not building the kingdom of Jonathan and his father Saul. Only eyes of faith can see that. And how good it is that Jonathan saw it. Because ultimately he was looking at the gospel. Ultimately, by faith, Jonathan, and we will see in Jonathan's trajectory, that Jonathan will see by faith that God is building a house that will last forever through a new warrior king named David. And though Jonathan will ultimately lay down his life for the sake of this new kingdom, in doing so, Jonathan inherited a kingdom that will last forever. Do you see this? Do you see the way that we can take action knowing that God is building a kingdom that will last forever? We may lose things in this life, but God has us in the palm of His hand. Do you see the way we can reject man-centered religion that clamors for God's favor? Because God has come to us and God has come and made a way for us on His own. And do you see how you can value the Word over winning, even when it seems like you're losing in this life, because ultimately you are laying hold to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have so much to learn from the faith of the warrior who would be king, who, as I said, laid down his life for the sake of this kingdom that God is building that was bigger than a Sauline dynasty, that was bigger than Jonathan sitting on a throne. And in so doing, he laid his hands, and he laid hold of a kingdom that you can never lose. Brothers and sisters, so can you. By grace, through faith today, you can step into the kingdom of God. You can cease worrying about whether or not you're truly meeting your full potential and know that God has you right where He wants you today. And if you would step into that kingdom, no matter what losses you may have suffered in this life, Jesus will restore that unto you and even more when He comes into His kingdom. I'll offer you an invitation today. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, I pray you would. I'll be here for you if you need someone to talk to. Second of all, you may be a believer and you may say, Pastor, I just need some time with the Lord. This is what this time is for. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. What a joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, let me invite you to come. Let's pray together.